Hey, welcome to this episode of Settle the Far. This is Corey Garvey. This is a podcast where I sit down and I talk to people who've made big moves in their life. It might be to a new career, a new location, a new community they join. And I talk to them about their process and, and what was the motivation that got them there? How did they actually make the jump? And looking back, what they feel like they've learned about themselves and about the world around them. Today I'm talking with Sean Hurley. He's a former college football player who for years looked at exercise as sort of the number one way to stay healthy. And over the last five years or so, has begun to realize that it's nutrition and the things that we put in our body that are really crucial to this entire process of aging well. Sean is a really passionate person when it comes to this field, and it was great to just understand what it is that he looks at as the most important drivers for somebody to be able to take on a lifestyle where they appreciate nutrition and they're thinking about the right things um, each time they step into a restaurant or a grocery store or whatever it is. I myself am someone who's really interested in this. I read a lot on my own. I've tried a lot, a lot of diets on myself. So getting to talk to somebody who is more passionate and has um, a clearer understanding of, of what's important was really useful for me. If you're somebody who's similar and you've gotten into diets yourself or you're wondering you know, what some of those things are that are important to understand, this is, this is the interview for you. But even if you're not and you just want to hear about somebody who has a passion outside of their main professional focus, Sean is a great example of that. I think you know that's what really gets me excited is I have all these different hobbies and things I look into myself. And the way he's able to focus and, and has been able to turn it into something that's more than a passion, you know, help, helping out others who are struggling with nutrition, struggling with aging well, uh, it's really inspirational in that way. Thank you again for those who have been listening to Settle the Far. It's great to have a couple, couple listeners out there. Um, you can find Settle the Far, as you know, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and podcast.coreygarvey.com. Leave me a little feedback. Anything that I can do to make this show better is, uh, is something I want to be doing. So please get in touch with me. Don't be afraid to reach out. You can message me at Corey at CoreyGarvey.com or through any of those other different channels. And I'd be happy to hear from you. All right. On to the show. Here is my conversation with Sean Hurley. All right. Great. I'm here with Sean Hurley. He, he and I actually met through my brother. You guys are friends from the professional world, I believe. And Sean, you were a former football player at Wagner. As far as I could tell with my research, you graduated as the school's all-time leader in receptions. So you weren't just signing up for the team. You were a big, uh, big part of the success you had while you were there. And then coming into the career world, the professional world, you... Worked as a bondbroker for a while. From from our conversations, I know you sort of made a move into uh, as a sales specialist of uh, data feeds within the financial space and probably a less topsy-turvy kind of lifestyle. But I think the thing that I'm most interested in is where you've taken up a passion of health and wellness through nutrition over the past few years. And you know that's why when my my brother mentioned to me, and I sort of started following you on social media and such, of the things you've been doing and your, your attention to health and wellness, I really wanted to get in touch with you because I myself have had similar uh, sort of feelings over the past few years, and change, it's changed a lot of my life just eating differently. And 
so thank you for coming on. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing about how you went through all this. And maybe as a start, you could get into where, where you felt your attitude was toward wellness and nutrition when you were a record-breaking football player back at Wagner. Yes. Hey, thank you for having me today. This is, uh, this is an exciting topic for me, as you know. And uh, yeah, so if you think, if I think back to uh, my childhood and, you know, I played sports through high school, football, basketball, baseball, and then four years of college football. And it's funny, as a, as a kid that was running every day, uh, I was a receiver and punt returner, kick returner. Um, you know, of course, basketball's running and, you know, I was a leadoff hitter and shortstop. I was always running and diving, climbing trees, riding bikes as a kid. And I grew up in a, in a, in a house in central mass and my parents didn't know much about nutrition at all. And so it was really about getting, uh, just food on the table and they were kind of stuck in the seventies and eighties kind of processed food, make it easy. Uh, everyone was busy, mom and dad working three kids, all each of us a year apart. Um, so it was just getting food on the table and with me running every day, uh, I, I basically rented that processed food, you know, it didn't stay on me. And so, uh, it's funny in, in, uh, my young twenties out of college, my wife was, uh, she was a marketing specialist at Weight Watchers for 12 years. And she had told me for years that it's it's not an exercise, it's what you eat. And for, for years, I was like, that's just not true. Because <laughs> my whole first half of life, up to that point, I ate whatever I wanted, and I ran it off. So my life, I thought, proved her wrong. Uh, but now after college, no more uh, football. And, you know, after playing sports for that many years, at that level, giving everything I had on every play, uh, I wanted a break from, you know, serious sports. So I didn't get into cycling or jogging every day. I, I took a break and still lifted weights, but I started to put on weight. You know, I was 145 pounds when I was 15 and I was 145 pounds when I was 21. I, you know, as much as I lifted all the running, I couldn't gain weight. So then I started gaining weight in my 20s. And as she's saying this, I start to kind of get bigger. And that 145 eventually get up to like 180 uh, for a kid who could never gain weight. What my wife had been telling me started to become the truth. It's, it's not the running and exercise uh, unless you do it uh, 10 miles a day or whatever it is. You can't run off. You can't run away from a bad diet unless you run and work out at a very high level. And so, you know, that was, that was my earlier days. I literally just ate and drank whatever I wanted and rented it, if you will. Yeah. I, I was very similar and probably didn't have the best. I, I think I was in a similar position where I was moving so often and it just didn't feel like the attention to nutrition was all that necessary and it's because you prove to yourself that you can do these things, right? And um, how much for you, you know, going from 145 to 180, how long did it take along the way to sort of realize, okay, uh, clearly 
the whether it's what I'm eating or my career or whatever lifestyle choices are having this effect? Why did it take as long as you think? Why did it take as it's, long as it did? Do you think? That's a good question. And it took that that growth was about ten years. Um, when I was about 30, 31, when I was at my highest weight, and I was a Wall Street broker sitting in a seat from six thirty in the morning until five at night, and you know we would have lunch, uh, breakfast delivered in, lunch delivered in, uh, just leave the seat to go to the bathroom essentially. So sitting all day and eating, you know, Chinese food, highly processed junk essentially that tasted delicious. You know, we would find the best cookie place and have these at 2 p.m., 3 p.m., have an order of a bunch of delicious chocolate chip cookies from the best place in Manhattan or cupcakes from Magnolia, Chinese food. Uh, so it was, it was a, it was an environment where it was about pleasure and, um, you know, it really sitting all day and eating that food, you know, I gained, uh, all that weight. And the funny thing about humans is we look in the mirror, we see ourselves every day, the mirror kind of lies to us and we start to get slowly comfortable with that added weight. And we just kind of buy bigger pants every two years. And we, we kind of write it off as, well, this is part of the human existence we get a little bit bigger every year and we look around and everyone gets a little bit bigger every year because, you know, we're eating all this processed food and we're also eating it all day long. You know, what I've come to find out is the human body doesn't switch from burning food that we eat to burning fat on our body, which is part of our, we're designed to switch to body fat as fuel when we go through periods without food, it's for 300,000 years, uh, humans would have days and, and sometimes a week or more with little to no food. So our body is designed to switch to the body fat reserve to survive. It's, it's part of our, our, our history. But today, we stop eating at 9 p.m. We wake up at 8 p.m., let's say, or let's say you stop at 8, wake up at 8, there's the 12 hours. We're eating breakfast within an hour of waking up, and we've now never gone to the body fat to burn it, and we start eating again. So that's why we keep adding every year. And what I've come to find in this in this journey, and it's, about, it's been about seven years, a little over seven years now, uh, and I'm, I got back to 145 pounds in eight months of doing this from the 180 to 145. Wow. And I've been, I've been here since for that whole seven years without, with very little running, uh, no cycling or long distance running, just some sprints and some pull-ups and sit-ups and dumbbells. I work out for like 10 minutes, uh, three days a week and I'm stuck at 145. I'm in great shape. And it's because I've learned to eat a very wide variety of real food and do it in a very small window. So I'll wake up, I'll stop eating at 7 p.m. I'll wake up around that time, and I won't have my quote-unquote breakfast, I won't break my fast until around 2 p.m. So I'm allowing my body to continue to use its fat reserves as fuel, which keeps me at my ideal weight of 145. It's a great biohack, and it's, it's basically what we're designed to do. And when we're doing that, we're not only burning fat, but all the cells in our body, all the cells in our organs, our liver, our pancreas, our kidney, our esophagus, uh, 
our colon, the whole feeding system, if you will, the cells get a chance to rest and regenerate because aging is all about cellular regeneration. Our cells die and regenerate, uh, you know, from one to five days, depending on the organ, uh, the heart and the brain and lungs regenerate a little slower. We need that consistency, but our, our cells are constantly regenerating. If we are constantly throwing food down our mouth, then the cells in our colon and liver and esophagus and pancreas don't have as much of a chance to rest and regenerate. So they wear down faster and we become disabled, uh, obese and disabled. And we, we're, we're, we're playing Russian roulette because we all have different genetic predispositions for which organ may break down yeah. sooner. And, and we're just kind of leaving it to chance. Yeah, it's there's so much to it. And I think the average person, myself included, doesn't have as much information about it as they probably should, considering how vital it is to our lives. And every single day is marked by the things that we eat and the meals that we're going to. And it's clear that now, you know, compared to maybe 100 years ago, there is a whole new spectrum of things that we could put in our body. There's processed foods, there's things that have been extracted from particular foods and maybe re-added into other foods and things like that. Um, that I think it's, it's very important that people give it the attention that it really deserves considering how much effort we put into it. And for myself, I started as a, uh, I remember doing a paleo diet with a friend of mine in when I was just out of school and just out of college, we were working, and it really caught my attention for how different I felt when I wouldn't eat carbs at lunch. And getting back to work was a lot easier. I felt like I was sharper. I didn't have a lag. And it sort of got me down this track of reading more about nutrition, understanding more about what I'm putting in my body, um, getting to a space of, of really logging what I'm eating and, and knowing how, or at least trying to have an understanding of how each thing is going to affect me and doing things like intermittent fasting, which you're bringing up. When, so as you were learning more about this, it sounds like you get to a point and you're convinced that, okay, my nutrition is really going to matter for this. Um, what did you expect to get out of that research? Were you planning to go as deeply and gain as much of an understanding as you did? And then what was it that you learned in doing this research that sort of caught your eye and, and really hooked you into, okay, I got to get in into even more? Like, why not stop at um, understanding just enough to help you lose the weight? Yes. Uh, so that's, that's a good question. So the, the catalyst for change, and that's one thing I found out, is no one's going to make a change unless they have a strong catalyst. To make a change, if you think about it, whether it's you're an alcoholic or processed food or cigarettes, to make a change out of addiction, you know, it's, it's all tying back to our dopamine reward. And to make a change for how we get our dopamine reward, we need like a rocket ship explosion, like a, to get a, 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 a rocket out of Earth and into outer space, we need an incredible explosion. And I've found in dealing with people with multiple addictions, uh, trying to help them break them, I cannot create their catalyst. They have to create it for themselves. 
And that's why, you know, with alcoholics, they talk about a bottom. You know, you get into a car accident or you get arrested. And that's their catalyst for change. They don't like that. They want to get out of it. So my catalyst for change in this realm uh, was really, it was in 2013. And I was at uh, BGC, a a broker firm, brokering mortgage-backed securities over the phone in between the banks. And after 2008, there was a big push to uh, get rid of the voice brokers because the government didn't know when they let Lehman fail that AIG was going to go out of business immediately because they had no transparency into the counterparty risk. So because all the trades were done over the phone at weird broker shops like BGC. So what the government and what the whole industry really wanted to do was to put all those trades on a machine. And if they put them on a machine, they can track it and the government can say, okay, should we let Lehman fail or the new Lehman, whoever that may be? Well, let's look and see what the risk is from other counterparties tied to it. So that was, there was a big push to turn that voice broker market into an electronic market, which meant the trader at Deutsche Bank just pressed a button. He didn't have to pick up a phone and talk to me. So that voice brokering market was becoming obsolete. And I still had two years on my contract at BGC. Even though the business was very slow, I was sitting in a seat all day. Uh, so I said, you know what? My catalyst for change was really, I was almost 40 and I was going through a midlife career change. And I was like, let me get to the best version of myself. Let me, you know, I, I really enjoyed the Jason Bourne trilogy. I read them right after college and it was it was, you know, thinking about an assassin and, and thinking about he had to think through every situation. You have to be in optimal shape to jump and climb. And so I said to myself, get, you know, as lean and mean mentally, physically and financially to get through this midlife career change. Become the best version of yourself is what I told myself. And it just literally started with eating a little bit less and reading a little bit on the Internet, sitting in the seat without a lot of work to do. And the more I read and learned, the more questions I had. And to your question earlier, you know, what really accelerated it when I, you know, I'm reading about eating clean food. We kind of know processed food's bad for us, right? Everyone knows it, but why and what's happening? And then you start to read a little deeper and you you get to the microbiome and the microbiome uh, is so fascinating. I started reading about it in 2013. It was only five years old on earth. The Global Human Microbiome Project started in 2008 as an offshoot to the Human Genome Project that started in 1992. You know, right, 2004, 5, 6, we had mapped all 23,000 human genes, but they kept, in this nanotechnology view, they kept running into these foreign uh, this foreign DNA, these genes that were alien or junk DNA, they were calling it. And it turns out to be, it was the DNA of the bacteria, fungus, viruses, parasites in us. And they were finding way more of this alien DNA than the 23,000 human genes we mapped. So that was then around 2008, they're like, well, this is this is an explosion. Let's continue with this global science experiment that we did with the human genome and let's create the human microbiome project. And so we started looking deep into the microbiome 
And it was five years later that I was, uh, I found it in 2013. And it, it's just so fascinating because if you think about it's the microbiome, there are, you know, you think about the human cellular system, there are a, a trillion uh, cells that we all share. Uh, I'm sorry, 10 trillion human cells that we all have. Everyone you look at has about 10 trillion human cells. But there, we all have about 100 trillion cells from these microbes. So at the cellular level, 90% of you is not you. It's these microbes. So the, the, in this experiment, this, this project, the, the microbiologists uh, that look into this have actually changed the name from human being to what they call a holobiont, which is out of many, one. So we are not this solo being. We are a superorganism, and more of our cells come from these microscopic beings than come from our mom and dad, you know? So it's like, they, in fact, the, you know, 23,000 human genes, the microbiome science is showing that there are about 3 million genes from the microbes. So 23,000 genes wow. to 3 million. And that whole science is called epigenetics, you know, around the DNA that we're uh, born with. And they're finding that epigenetics have a profound effect on health or disease. So, and you think about the microbes, if the microbes are everywhere, they find them from the crust and of the earth up to the top of the atmosphere. They're everywhere. We're basically walking through a jello of microbes. When we, when you and I sit together in a room and we're talking, we are doing something called horizontal gene transfer. So as you talk and the, some spit comes out and there are different microbes in your body that we start to share. The vertical gene transfers from your mom and dad to you, the horizontal gene transfers happening all over the earth. So we're, we share microbes and the DNA from the microbes comes into us. So it's horizontal gene transfer. And they're finding that kids that grow up on a farm have less autoimmune disorders than kids that grow up in a high rise in, in a city because they're exposed to a more diverse set of microbes. And that kind of, that, that works with what we eat as well. Yeah. They find that they can tell if someone is obese, 92% uh, chance, 92% uh, rate of uh, positive rate that the person is obese without looking at them just by looking at their microbiome. And it's, what they're finding is singularity of the microbiome is seen in all chronic disorders from obesity, cardiovascular, lupus, Crohn's. Uh, when you look at these chronic diseases, they find a singular microbiome. So the opposite of that is a diverse microbiome. And there are two words for that, a diverse microbiome that has all these different kinds of microbes is called symbiosis. And the singular one is called dysbiosis. And it's, it's a really fascinating, it, it blew my mind when I found it. And um, I read for four to six hours, I read research every day, and I still do. Uh, it's amazing what you can find. Um, 
I follow on Twitter the smartest gastroenterologist on earth, smartest endocrinologist, smartest microbiologist. So with Twitter, if you follow, find and follow the smartest people, they put out research and share other people's research. And I basically just taught myself, I was a history major and then in finance, and I taught myself all the medical acronyms and anatomy and physiology because it was so fascinating to put this all together. Yeah. And t Twitter was the vehicle that, um, you know, delivered these brilliant minds to my phone every day. Yeah, it's it's a lot how it's a lot like how I've kind of taken on the space, and uh, it's amazing these days how much direct access you have to experts in the field and the ability to read journal articles and books and things that are coming directly from you know some of the real voices in the space. Um, it changes what an individual can kind of take on, and you mentioned that the Human Genome Project, it started, sorry, the, the Microbiome Project started in 2008. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Think of how new that is. Yeah. Human, so right? so how do you, I think within the, the eating space, you know, I frequently get pushback from people who I talk to and, and I try not to be too much of a, um, a nuisance to others where I'm telling them what they should eat and why certain things are bad for them. But at the same time, I think there's a bit of an obligation to somebody that you know and maybe you're close to that is looking at nutrition in the wrong from the wrong perspective and isn't mm -hmm. totally taking everything into account. And I know for me, it you know, it's like a light bulb moment when you realize that um, you know just thinking about okay, I'm going to eat this thing. Let me let me let me consciously look back on how I feel later after eating this. How um, how do you view the space because it is so new and it's something that it seems the repercussions of the research and the repercussions of how this actually uh, affects our, our aging hasn't totally made its way into the consumer end of it. And maybe it has in certain ways and maybe it has, hasn't in others. How do you view it in terms of like you being part of this movement and do you view it like that or is it a very personal um you know I'm, I'm doing this just to feel better for myself where do you see yourself in terms of this entire growth of understanding that we're beginning to have yeah that's that's just it right it's when you find something so valuable and so helpful to other humans it becomes an obligation to want to share it and if you're an empathetic person, and I am, uh, I felt such a strong uh, obligation to help save the world, if you will. And I struggled with how to approach that for many years uh, with friends and family and coworkers. And people that know me know I'm so passionate about this. And I've, I've annoyed certain friends and family members. And I've, I've learned, you know, like I said earlier on, I cannot create their catalyst for change. I can let them know what I've learned if they want to know it. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter under Age Wisely as a you know place for people to find me. And I started an LLC last year under the same name. And I help people that have um, heart issues, lupus, Crohn's. You know they've had these disorders where 
they were created, they have a genetic predisposition. You know, the, our genetics uh, load the gun, but our lifestyle pulls the trigger. So what I've found with this is um, for these people, they've gone to Western medicine to give them, you know, a big pharma pill that can't cure them. It only speaks to their symptoms. It can't cure them because the cure is changing their lifestyle. And it's, it's really in all the microbiome research, no one can tell you which specific microbes are great to have. And all these probiotics they sell, these pills, it's all junk. It's all garbage because no one knows, oh, we need the bacteria deets or we need the firmicutes. Or we, don't, we don't know which ones. We know, though, in all this microbiome research, what is constantly coming up is a diversity of microbes is key. And in doing, how do we create a diverse microbiome? We need to eat a very wide variety of plants and animals. So if, if you eat blackberries today, have raspberries tomorrow and strawberries the next day. If you have beets today, think of other roots, have a carrot tomorrow, have turnip the next day. So, you know, if you think about it like that, today you have spinach, tomorrow arugula, next day romaine. If you continue to have that wide variety, not only are you bringing in, think about the microbes, like I was saying, the microbes that eat carrots are already in the ground. You know, the microbes yeah. that like them are there. They're everywhere. So when we eat the carrot, we swallow it. Some of the microbes pass through us, but some of them stay in our colon. So it's a, it's a really, we, we create our gut garden of microbes based off of what we eat. And if we eat a wide variety, we're bringing in a more diverse set of microbes. And so, you know, I help people eat a very wide variety. I teach them. I give them a list of foods. I teach them how to cook. I take them to Whole Foods. I show them where it is. I give them, you know, I spent a year of, of my life really deep into additives. And I, I learned the whole history of the additives in the United States. And um, it's a, it's. It's one of those uh, research projects where you just your eyebrows are high and your chin is low, like oh my god, and you realize there's a loophole that is still open. From 1997, they opened it, and it's still open today. And it goes like this: any company that finds that a new chemical additive is safe uh, by scientific research, and the scientist can and always does work for the company. So a scientist at Coca-Cola, as long as that scientist says that it's safe, Coca-Cola can add it to the food supply without even telling the FDA, never mind FDA review. Wow. So from 1997 until today, it's still open. The, if you think about this, the Oreos from 1998 are, have more additives, and we don't even know what they are, than the Oreos from 1996. So... When you read that and you realize no one is protecting us, so the best thing to do is avoid these processed food companies who are definitely taking advantage of that loophole, putting in addictive chemicals and you know this, these fake flavorings under the fake name natural flavors. You know The only difference between natural and artificial flavors is that the natural flavor was first derived from something in nature. So you get natural lemon flavor. Yep. It's never lemon. It's not lemons. It's 
you know, it's derived from they could use bark. And then they always bring it into their chemistry set and they add all these fake flavors to make the bark <laughs> kind of just taste like lemon, you know? Do you? So it's, yeah. I, I had a question. So you brought up your um, parents and, and kind of eating from that 80s, 90s processed food generation and time. And I've seen a lot of things lately over the past couple of years about how fat was created uh, at, or made into the enemy. And mm. in a lot of ways, sugar was given a pass. And whether that's some sugar lobbying going on, I, w- I would imagine there are, you know, soda and candy companies that were pushing for that kind of decision. And it seemed like it was sort of an in- inside job with different individuals in certain institutions. And um, but But growing up with that kind of diet, and I was in the same place and I, I remember I can just think of some of the foods that not only we ate but that I knew were uh, a big part of a lot of people's diets I remember going to a the park in with my class and we might, we might go over there for some outdoor day in the spring and there's these juice products that are just completely sugar um, how, how have you how do you feel that things have gone over the last five to ten years let's say because my personal opinion is it's actually gotten a lot better and the availability of things like peanut butter that are not overly saturated in sugar and cereals that are more natural has gotten a lot better than it was in at the turn of the century. Um, have you felt the same way and how does, uh, how how many steps do we have to go? Are we still are we still on that path? And is there a long ways to go? Yeah, this there's a lot to this topic. This is a this is a big uh, point right here. Sugar is just another additive. Yep. You know, there's there's been a big push of oh, don't eat added sugar, don't eat sugar. Watch the sugar. But when you really break it down, and you're right, the sugar lobby was behind uh, Dr. Ansel Keys in the late fifties. The government listened to Dr. Ansel Keys, who was paid by the sugar lobby industry to come up with, you know, fat is the enemy. And uh, we went to refined flour as the friend. Yeah. And if you look, look at the, so this is 1959. Dr. And Ansel he, he Keys. was working out of Harvard, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. Just Harvard is to, bought. Yeah. Yes. So the, it's all follow the money and you can put it all together. The sugar lobby started in 1911. Like, it's been around for a long time. It's got a lot of power. Uh, so this one report got the government to say, okay, fat is the enemy. Uh, let's go to refined flour. And if you look at the average American man of 1960 and the average American man of today and the woman of then and the woman of today, so the average American woman today weighs two pounds more than the average American man of 1960. Wow. So the average American man of 19, that's scary. The average American man in 1960 weighed 166. The average American woman today weighs 168. That same man is now 200 pounds. That's not evolution because the man only grew a half an inch. That's processed food disease. And that fat is the enemy was a huge proponent of that. And sugar lobby was behind that. And 
it's not just sugar though. Sugar is just one of at one of the 10,000 plus additives in our processed food supply. And when I, as I went through that, I was like, all right, keep my sugar from processed food under 25 grams a day. Dr. Robert Lustig out of UCSF is a big proponent of that. He's a pediatric endocrinologist, one of the best endocrinologists on earth. And he's big, he was in the movie Fed Up and he's been in a lot of other documentaries and he's done a ton because he's seeing kids that are uh, obese at eight years old and he's seeing they have this, if you think about diabetes, in the, in the 80s, type two diabetes wasn't called type two diabetes. Do you know what it was called? No. It was called adult onset diabetes. Yeah, yeah. So they had to change the name because more and more kids were getting this disease. So it's not adult onset, it's just type two. Another like silly name that means nothing. But the only way to get type two diabetes is by through your mouth, what you put in the hole under your nose. And the only way to get rid of type two diabetes is changing what you put in your mouth. So it's type two diabetes is, it should be renamed processed food disease. And when I've come on this journey, seven year journey, it wasn't just lowering the sugar in the processed food I found, but it's avoiding the processed food environment altogether. For 300,000 years, humans have eaten real food that was recently living, alive, full of uh, the, the universal energy source is called adenosine triphosphate, ATP. Every living thing runs on that same exact ATP energy source, whether it's us, a dog, uh, plants, photosynthesis converts sunlight into ATP. Even the bacteria and fungus and, and parasites run on ATP, everything. So when we go back to the original way of eating real food that's alive, full of ATP, we are creating more ATP in our body and creating less waste. Because everything we eat goes into the mitochondria of the cell, that's the converter, and that converts what we eat into a mixture of energy ATP and waste, uh, which is called reactive oxygen species, ROS. So think of any converter. The cleaner the fuel you put into the converter, whether it's your lawnmower, or your car, or your mitochondria, the cleaner the fuel, the, uh, the cleaner the engine's going to run, the better it's going to run, and the less waste, and the longer it's going to last. Yeah, absolutely. The same, th same thing with us, right? So by eating... What I've found, it's not keeping your sugar under 25 grams a day. It's eating real food from the earth or the water or recently killed animals. And we generate more ATP and less waste. Are we, are we getting any better fat. at that? Are we getting any better at eating these living things? Or is... It's so hard to do, oh, Corey. That's the thing, right? If you look at it, to make the transition from this processed food... With all these additives, and think about it for since 97, think of all the sneaky, addictive chemical additives put in the food to sell product yeah. that we're not even aware of. So what I found is it's all about addiction. To help people break their processed food addiction and eat real food, anyone can do it, and it takes two to four weeks. You're changing your microbiome. And remember I said some of them stay in your colon. 
how does the carrot-eating microbe get more carrots if it's stuck in your colon? Well, what they found in the microbiome research is there's two-way communication between the gut and the brain. Yeah. Not just the brain down, but the, what is this communication from the gut back to the brain? It's the microbes that eat the food that they like causing a craving for you to go have more. So when you eat a lot of Doritos and Oreos, you've got microbes in your gut that like that food. And they're gonna, it's going to be hard to break that addiction. So you have to kill them. You have to basically eradicate them by starving them out for two to four weeks. And at the same time, bringing in different microbes by eating a variety of real food. And it's funny, after two to four weeks, your cravings change. Your palate changes. Absolutely. And you begin to appreciate the real food again. Yeah. I've had that kind of, I've gone through that and it, it really does change what you're looking for out of food and how it sits on your mind throughout the day. And if you give up certain pieces of it, and I know you were speaking about sugar not being the only thing, but if I give up sugar for a while and then come back to it even just a little bit, it kind of grabs me and I want more later in the day or the following day. Um, but I want to get back to the thing you were talking about, to what you were talking about with the the processed food, this conversation that your your gut is having with your brain, I've noticed that in I, the things that I struggle with the most day to day is avoiding the foods that I don't want to be eating. And it's a lot easier if I'm in a good habit, if I've been making a few smart decisions earlier in the day, it can help me out later in the day. If I'm at a point where really they come in waves, and if I'm in a wave of eating well and healthy, I'm not thinking about ice cream at the end of the day, it, it, it turns me off. It's not what I want to have at all. And I similarly think that those type of feelings and uh, sort of the way society is set up is similar to social media and the way that social media and just the whole media engine runs where a lot of it is done to hook you in, to, to hit these receptors that you have that make you feel better throughout the day. And it's this fight that I'm very conscious that we're, we're in, and I think a lot of other people are these days, of you know, some type of corporate um, incentive that to, to make a company larger. And they you know, slip things like making sure that your phone notifies you of every like that you get on your tweet. They, they slip that in and, and try to get it around the privacy things you agree to or the default settings because they know that's going to get you back more frequently in a similar way that I'm sure food companies do this with additives and, and they're working to try to get you really locked in there to bring you bring you back to their food. How, how do you think that we as consumers of both food, of media, of all of these things where it's it really feels like the corporate structure of the world does not work on behalf of individuals. Like it works to grow the share price and get people to sell more things. And I feel as though when I go to some markets are, are, I think the market is like a fine place. Like they're trying to get you what you need, but still, if you go to like a large supermarket, that's not a organics type farm to table, you know, farmer's market kind of thing. The majority of the market you you can't shop in if you're trying to avoid processed food. Almost the entire center of the supermarket you can't shop in. And it it's telling for what seems to be the priority of the companies that are selling things to you. How as we how do you view yourself as a consumer? Is it you know, do you not trust at all what you're seeing from 
you know, for me, I, I, I get pretty paranoid about it almost where like, I almost don't trust any restaurant at some point, just like I don't really, you know, it's, I'm, I'm in a struggle to trust a lot of media sources these days. And are we, do you foresee us continuing to be in this position of having to, to sort of carve our own path? Because the general solution that's being presented to people, whether it's on the food front or the news front or whatever, is it has a prerogative and it has a purpose of what they're trying to accomplish with that rather than just helping people. Well, when we outsource our dopamine reward to companies, they will fill that Achilles heel as much as they can for profit. It really comes down to controlling how we get our pleasure, right? And when these companies make these processed food, uh, this processed food, they literally look for something called the bliss point. You know, when they make a Dorito uh, or gum or candy bar, they tweak up the explosion in the dopamine reward so high to the point where you bite into a certain Pringle, let's say, and you get this taste and texture that creates an explosion in your brain like you've won a slot machine in Vegas. They're looking for that bliss point. That's the term they use in these processed food companies. And when they find the bliss point, that's when they've got the product. And we take a bite and it's like, yeah. and as humans, we don't stand a chance. So if we outsource our dopamine reward to these companies that have over 10,000 additives and most are created for profit, you know, whether it's a preservative to stay on the shelf long, an emulsifier to blend oil and water, something that's not natural. Uh, a, a thickener to make the almond milk more palatable and a, and a stabilizer to keep that thickener in place. All of these additives are created uh, to sell product. And what I've come to find is the gut mucus, these emulsifiers, these additives are eroding our gut mucus. Whereas if we eat fiber, it thickens our gut mucus. Because when you give the good microbes that like carrots a carrot and they eat it, it's all coming down to the byproduct from the microbe. So when you give it a carrot, as it eats the carrot, it creates a byproduct because it's a living organism that has waste. The waste, when you give it a carrot, is called short-chain fatty acids. And they're acetate, butyrate, uh, and propanate. These uh, short-chain fatty acids thicken the gut mucus. Well, why is that important? 70% of our immune system resides in our gut mucus. So when we eat processed food full of additives, we're eroding the mucus, basically burning down our army barracks. So where is the 70% of our, our immune system in our gut? It's, we're weakening our immune system by eroding our mucus. And these additives, uh, there was the studies out of Georgia State, Dr. Andrew Gewertz, one of the first person to study additives it was like six years ago, five years ago. And he showed that common emulsifiers in processed food, you know, they continue to do an emulsifier blends oil and water by irritating the oil molecule and opening it, irritating the water molecule and opening it. And it forces a blending like a chain necklace. So what he found was these irritants don't stop their uh, irritation after we swallow it because our 
inside of us is still physics on Earth. So he found that these emulsifiers continue to erode our gut mucus through this irritant detergent uh, factor. Some of the same emulsifiers that are in processed food are in soap to allow the Dawn uh, to irritate the grease on the pan and allow it to be removed. So these detergents or irritants from the processed food erode our mucus. If I could be a superhero, I would be gut mucus man. That's what I've found to be the most important factor in health is eating to, you know, to thicken the gut mucus. And that's why fiber is so important. It's the, it's the thing that, uh, you know, the microbes, when they eat fiber, these short chain fatty acids, they, they create thicken the mucus. And when you give them processed food, they create uh, different byproducts. Um, they're called PAMPs, pathogen associated uh, uh, microbes, right? And these, these PAMPs, like lipopolysaccharide, are found in people that eat a lot of processed food and they cause uh, hardened arteries and other issues. So it really, it's coming down to what we eat brings in and continues to feed our microbes and their byproducts will lead us toward health or disease. How, and it's, it's, how responsible do you think each like person is for, for understanding this themselves at the moment? And it it's seems so, like it's so hard, right? It's so convoluted and it's convoluted and tricky and complex on purpose. Um, what I do, you know, I, I have, I, like I mentioned, I have clients that have chronic disorders. Those are the only people that will go this deep into a clean lifestyle. Other people don't want to really throw away all the processed food. But what I teach these people is to reprogram how you view what you do in that hole under your nose, right? Why do you eat? Well, most of the time it's for pleasure or to get rid of fear. Like right now, most people are hunkered down in their homes eating more processed food. And, you know, it's, it's most of the time we're eating for pleasure and not for nourishment. So I teach people to eat for nourishment and you begin to get pleasure down the road from that healthy eating. You feel better. Um, 95% of our serotonin is in our gut, not in our brain. 95%. And that's our happy chemical, right? Well, when you eat a lot of refined flour, pizza, bagels, pasta, cookies, cake, sure. think of that gluey substance, even sugar-free cereal is a gluey substance that turns to glucose immediately. It turns to sugar. So when you eat this refined flour and processed food, you're sending like a bag of f flour through a wet 30-foot tube from our mouth to our anus is 30 feet. So when you put you know, a loaf of bread down there, it doesn't go through the flow system well. Serotonin's first role is not to make us happy. What I've found in this research is serotonin is a propulsion element think about if you if you have diarrhea or vomit oh you yeah. never stop like it's a horrible feeling but our body is expelling something toxic well how does it explode out serotonin are like cannonballs littered from our throughout that 30-foot tube and if the toxin is in the higher side the serotonin balls will explode out and it will come out of our mouth if it's in the lower side the serotonin cannonballs will explode out and it'll go out the back. 
if you think about that with processed food and, and the refined flour, if you're eating this gooey stuff that doesn't flow through the system well, we're wasting serotonin to push that through the system. So by eating pleasure from the processed food, we're actually eroding our long-term happiness. So when you start to eat fibrous food and healthy fats from salmon and meat and nuts and seeds and clean oils from like pistachio, olive oil, coconut oil, when we eat these healthy fats and fibrous foods, we the microbes eat the fiber. There's nothing in the human body that can break down fiber. It goes all the way through the system and the microbes eat it and they break it down. So they help it flow. When you're eating processed food and refined flour, you're not getting that same assistance and you're wasting serotonin. So you're by getting the immediate pleasure, you're actually eroding your long-term happiness and you get kind of down and so you want to get back up again so you eat more processed food. It's but a it, vicious cycle. It is. And if I'm... You know, I am uh, going through down the street and I need something to eat. It seems as though the world has um, accepted a lot of what I think you and I would consider as not the healthiest practices. And obviously, you know, I think if you take a little bit of time for anyone who's a who's an alcohol drinker, if you take some time and don't drink, you get amazed at how prevalent alcohol is throughout the world and accepted it is and none of the you know negative side effects are really advertised or anything like that um how do you how do you talk to your clients about the fact that the world seems to accept the the fact that we should eat bread and you know pizza and bagels are all over the place in the new york area you have chips and just talking square footage at a supermarket, so much of it is off limits. What is that mental change like that people have to make? And um, and are you are you upfront with them? Like, is it clear to them that they have to be fairly vigilant in the way that they go about selecting their diet and and yeah, and like going through the world that seems to want to trick them at every at every chance? Yeah, when I go to farmers markets, which I do throughout the summer here, uh, I. It's funny when you go, there are only, uh, say there are 25 stands, only two of them have organic produce, first of all. And the longest lines are always at the bread and muffin stands because refined flour turns to sugar immediately. So it's refined flour has, it's basically like a speed ball. It has something called gliadin in the wheat and gliadin is an opiate. So you get that. Ah, that dopey heroin, ah, that comfort food, they call it. But the refined flour, as I mentioned earlier, turns to glucose immediately after chewing it and swallowing it. So it's a speedball of like cocaine and heroin. So it's incredibly addictive. That's why pizza and bagels and pasta and muffins and cookie and crackers and cereal, they sell like <laughs> hotcakes, as they say, right? Yeah. The, the, so they sell themselves. And it's because of the incredibly addictive nature of it. But our body is only burning or storing, right? It's not doing both. When we eat, so we talked about the mitochondria converting food to energy or waste. 
in that mitochondrial conversion, we need to have a little bit of glucose present for that to work. So the human body didn't find a lot of sugar on earth for 300,000 years. You know, some berries, some leaves, some nuts and seeds have a little bit of glucose, but not a lot. And so the body, when it, because it needs sugar to convert food to energy in the mitochondria, and we didn't have a lot on earth for most of our existence, our body is designed to go into store and crave mode when we, are, when we taste sugar. So when you're in store and crave mode, your metabolism, which is in your thyroid, in your throat, right at the front gates of where you eat, it's your thermostat that tells your furnace how to burn. When we eat sugar in any form, including refined flour, our metabolism in a thyroid tells our body, we have found sugar, store it, and continue to eat. Because we found this sugar that we're not going to see again for a while. Our bodies haven't adapted as quickly as the processed food 100-year-old uh, market has come along. We've been here for 300,000 years. This processed food is only 100 years old. Yeah. So our body still goes into store and crave mode. So when we take a bite of pizza, our body stores it as body fat. Insulin spikes. Insulin is like the bouncer that takes the bad guys out of the bar. The bad guys in this case are excess sugar. So it's storing that as body fat. So every bite of a slice of pizza is a bite that creates body fat. So it's about reprogramming how we eat and why we eat. When we learn that it's really about pleasure. And all these companies are brilliant at tricking us with these uh, taste and texture pleasure tricks. So once we realize, okay, let's try to eat for nourishment. Um, so we re reprogram how we eat and what kind of foods help us burn instead of store fat. And then we have to, I, I teach people to reset their environment, make their homes safe. If you have, if the ice cream is at the store, not in your freezer, it's a little bit harder to put it in your mouth, right? You have to get in your car, you have to drive there. So when we, we reset people's environments with a wide variety of real food, um, and then show them how to cook, put it together, and make combinations of macadamia nuts, some figs, and a clean dark chocolate. You just made a, a, a treat that has some sugar, but it's mostly natural sugar from the fig or prune. Yeah. You know, the rule of thumb is never eat sugar unless fiber is attached. You know, so the fruit, That's good. The, the apple that you eat has sugar, but it also has fiber. And berries are better than, than fruit because they have almost an equal amount of sugar and fiber. That sugar-fiber ratio is amazing because fiber slows down. It's almost like a parachute that slows down how fast the sugar goes from our mouth to our liver and pancreas. That's why orange juice is a very unhealthy choice because it has about 60 grams of sugar. It has no fiber because you just got rid of all the fiber. And it's a speedball to our liver and pancreas, which has to quickly convert that sugar to body fat. If it doesn't, we'll die. That's why diabetics need to take insulin because their insulin isn't doing that bouncer kind of thing, taking the sugar and storing it as fat. So they'll die of a sugar toxic overload. But for the rest of us that don't have diabetes, if we drink a glass of orange juice, that's 60 grams of sugar exploding to our liver and pancreas where our insulin has to spike 
to quickly store it as body fat. It's, it's uh, these companies have designed this food with the bliss point to fool us. So we need people like myself at the grassroots effort, because if you think about it, big agriculture, Monsanto, DuPont, Cargill, Syngenta, ChemChina, they make these Frankenstein genetically engineered seeds, you know, a carrot seed that has a patent on it for Monsanto is not a natural carrot seed from earth. And then they spray these pesticides, insecticides as they grow this fake carrot that they get to call a carrot. And the carrot I buy has a weird name. It's an organic carrot. It's different. It's so the carrot that from Monsanto is called a conventional carrot. That conventional means normal. So the organic is abnormal. It yeah, costs that's more. True. That's awful. Right? 99% of the farmland in America is this poisonous chemical Monsanto farmland. Only 1% of farmland in America is organic. That's wow. why it costs more. So, you know, you start to look at big ag makes these Frankenstein seeds that are poisonous. They sell them to big food. Big food throws their chemistry set on top of these poisonous agricultural products. So now it's even worse. We eat it. We get fat and sick. We go to big pharma to quote unquote save us, but they can't save us from our lifestyle choices. They can just treat symptoms. Big ag makes billions every year. Big food makes billions every year. Big pharma makes billions every year. And big government gets 30% tax from all those billions. So they're not going to tell you what I just told you today. Of course. So you need grassroots efforts from people like me that have done the research to teach people. Yet most humans are, are sitting ducks getting dopamine reward attacks from these companies. They have any, humans don't stand a chance without the knowledge and the catalyst for change. So reprogram your mind, reset your environment to be safe clean food in your home, at work. If you drive a lot, have a wide variety of nuts and seeds and some fruit, dried fruit, clean chocolate. Reset your environment to be safe and you'll renovate your gut microbiome and your whole cellular system to begin to operate correctly. So you're, you're unplugging, unplugging from the processed food machine and plugging into the earth and you'll find that things start to work correctly again. Yeah, those are, that's great advice. I think everyone needs to take this as a um, as a, a serious subject. I think sometimes it gets doesn't get that sort of attention, and putting yourself in a position of being successful with what you eat and having the right things in your home and informing yourself are all big parts of this. Uh, before we get going, do you have any suggestions for somebody who might look to start? knowing more and reading more about the space. You mentioned Twitter and some of the follows. As you said, your um, your Twitter handle is AgeWisely, A-G-E-W-I-S-E-L-Y. Do you do you have any specific follows? It's age underscore wisely. Oh, yeah. apologies, underscore wisely. Um, do you have any specific follows that you recommend or books or magazines or something you would recommend someone who's interested in this reading and, and getting themselves a bit more up to speed? Yeah, there, there are some amazing uh, people on earth. As I mentioned, that guy, Robert Lustig, great uh, to teach you about how the endocrine system works and 
there's Mark Hyman is an integrative medicine specialist. Um, he's amazing at this lifestyle. Frank Lipman is another one, L-I-P, M-A-N, Frank Lipman. And I'll put all of these on, uh, these the, guys on are, the website are brilliant so in people this can world. grab it. Uh, yeah, and there's, there's a, there are a lot of, I don't know if you want to get to the microbiome science, but there's a, a woman, Amy Prohl, P-R-O-A-L, and uh, there's a gentleman, uh, Cryan, C-R-Y-A-N. And are there books or, or any specific the things that you the read from these individuals? Research. I, you know, I actually don't read any books. I feel like books are kind of fluff where people add their own stuff. So I just read the, I read the research papers every day sure. and I'm compiling this information from the research. Uh, but you know, Mark Hyman has written great books. People love them. Uh, he completely understands this and, uh, is saving so many lives. You know, these people as doctors, uh, have instant credibility so they can build a network quickly. You know, someone like myself, there's no degree, no, no background. So that credibility is, is tricky. Even though I've connected the dots, people need to see that degree. That's just how humans are, you know? So, but following, following these, these people, um, will help add a layer of validity to what I'm saying. Um, and it, you know, as you start to follow those types of people, there are so many more and I can share with you offline. You can put them on your, on your website to help people out more. Great. Yeah, that would be great. Well, I would say that, you know, going to, uh, getting a degree and whatever it might be involves a lot of the same things that what, that you've been doing, Sean, and getting into the research, understanding the science behind how the human body works and what it is that helps us to uh, sort of stay stay fit, stay in a healthy shape, age well. Um, these are all things that I think are as similar between all of us as anything gets. And there's so much difficulty right now. Um, in sort of trying to keep a healthy diet, especially if you don't have the right information within you. So I, I really thank you for coming on, sharing a lot of that, because I know for, for a lot of people, this may be the first time that they've, um, they've heard a lot of that information. And really, uh, people appreciating how much their diet affects their well-being and their, their happiness and their health... Um, it really doesn't, there's nothing more important. And I think you've made that clear. And I really appreciate you for coming on. Yeah, I think if I may touch upon one more really important scientific piece, and then kind of an overview lifestyle, there, there's something called autophagy, autophagy, P-H-A-G-Y. And autophagy means self-eating. And there was a scientist out of Japan uh, in 2018, that uh, noticed that if we do certain things, we put our body into this state. And this state is proving to be incredibly important to age successfully at the cellular level. And the self-eating means um, the body, if the body goes into a stressed state from fasting, exercise, extreme cold, or extreme heat, our cellular system doesn't know that we're going to get out of the sauna. Our cellular system doesn't know we're going to get out of a 50-degree pool. 
our cellular system doesn't know that after a 20-hour fast, we're going to eat. And our cellular system doesn't know we're sprinting full speed, we're going to stop. So our cellular system, out of a life-saving mechanism, goes into this cellular um, maid service, if you will, and it less the autophagy self-eating they they it's they eat the damaged cells and discard them and force our stem cells to put out a new version of that cell so by doing these intermittent fasts and going in the sauna or the cold plunge and exercising we're basically biohacking our cellular system to clean up damaged cells so that we age more successfully so in part of a healthy lifestyle, the food is incredibly important. I think it's the first and foremost, something we do multiple times a day and something that can drastically change our cellular system, our microbiome very quickly. But there's also, the, of course, some exercise, some movement, not a lot, but some movement because um, that puts us into autophagy, getting some extreme heat, whether it's a hot bath or a sauna or whatever you can do. And getting cold, whether it's a cold shower or a cold plunge, um, by doing and by fasting, uh, the, the studies are showing calorie restriction and fasting states allow the cells to age more successfully because of autophagy. So it's counterintuitive. Our whole life, our mom said, honey, put on a coat. It's cold out. You're going to get sick. Or honey, you got to eat more. It's like, ma, you're actually killing me a little bit faster. <laughs> So that autophagy is a really interesting thing that makes us look at our lifestyle and say, you know what, we need a little bit of sunshine for vitamin D, which is so essential in so many components of our body. So get a little sunshine, eat real food in a small window, get some movement, have good healthy relationships um, that keep stress low. And they're finding that these components uh, are very important for a healthy lifestyle overall. Yeah, that's great information. The entire idea of autophagy and, and understanding a little bit about it and how fasting can help um, improve that process in the body is fascinating. And I think it's really driven a lot of the intermittent and somewhat longer fasts that people have gotten, that have gotten very popular over the last few years. Um, the idea of aging well. Yeah, I this is why, yes, that's a, that's a good point. This, this science from the, he was a Nobel winning he won the Nobel Prize for autophagy a couple of years ago. And no, not many people know that word, but that the people that get deep into intermittent fasting know it and they understand the value of autophagy. And it's not, it's not just fasting to stay thin. It's fasting to use our body fat as fuel, which rests our whole feeding system. Our organs don't have to work the same way as when we're eating. So we're using the fat as fuel to help the cellular system regenerate and we're also helping uh re recycle damaged cells during autophagy it's really i wanted to touch upon that because that's a big part of uh the small eating window and the heat and cold and, and movement to put our body in that cleansing system yeah thank you for bringing that up and i know that um that the process of sort of pushing that on and and making it more um the autophagy happened better and i know this is a lot of what you've worked on with age wisely it's just this idea of being being in a better position as we grow older and being able to do more and that's something that my mind has shifted toward lately 
is not just working out or doing various things maybe to live more years, but to be in good shape, good physical shape and a good physical space as I grow older, because there are so many things, you know, I want to continue to do, whether that's travel and be able to walk around and be able to um, feel as though I'm not hindered by sort of the world around me because I've gotten older or something like that. And, and these nutritional, uh, this nutritional focus and things like fasting and, and uh, whether it's heat or cold, they can really help as far as I know. And maybe um, you can tell me in keeping a healthy physical body so that I can do those things as I get a little bit older. That's a great point. And that's, you know, early on when I was thinking about helping people and my name for Twitter and, and Instagram, it's much easier to talk about diet, losing weight, looking good, right? That sells. But when I started reading about this, I realized this is way more than just being in great shape. This is about aging well at the cellular level, which of course the byproduct is you're going to look better than ever. So you don't have to worry about looks you're just going to accidentally look better than you can imagine. It, but what you're going to do is you're going to age more successfully or age wisely. And the word that is big today, it used to be lifespan. Oh, Americans, lifespan, 80, 80 years old. It's, you know, we've gone from 45 to 80 in 100 years. But what people aren't really talking about is from 50 to 80, these people are in these broken down, obese, diabetic, wheelchair pill popping states that they can they can't even tie their shoes that's not living that's just that's staying alive so the new term to your point and you're you're smart for for already working on this it's called health span yeah how the thing that i help people with is not staying alive on 15 pills like my poor mom and dad but living you know and you know this way of life you're correct. I mean, this is this is going to allow us to play soccer with our great great grandkid at 87 years old because we'll still be in a vehicle that is more like a Ferrari than a dump truck. You know, by making these smart choices, we're going to be increase our health span. Absolutely, and I think that's something that we can all strive for and have a have a real passion for because, um, as you said, I mean, even as I've gotten older, it's you know, I'm, I'm 31 and there's things I can't do physically now, or at least some slowing that I've seen, whether that's in running or getting some type of injury here or there. And I know at the times when I'm eating well and I'm fueling my body the right way, it allows me to pick, pick up on, um, additional exercises or just a clarity of thinking or the sleep mm. that I'm getting in a way that I feel like I am growing and I'm not just in a position of sort of moving backwards um, because I'm getting older. And I really implore everybody who's listening to, to get into this enough that what Sean has talked about in that two-week system of, of flushing your body out, of, of re-sort um, of assigning your stomach to and your, your microbiome so that it works in a way that fuels you, and that's what nutrition is for, by doing that, you sort of see gains that maybe a lot of people haven't seen in a long time, not since they were adolescent and, and getting older and growing bigger. And having increased stamina, having increased flexibility, um, 
you know, they might not be the direct effect always of exactly a change in your nutrition, but a lot of those, a lot of times that can lead to, okay, I'm thinking a little clearer now. I'm going to, I'm going to try yoga two days a week. I'm going to make sure that when I'm uh, exercising, I'm, I'm sort of not over pushing myself, overextending myself because I, um, I feel better and I feel like I can take on these activities in the way that I want to. And I've just found that that, you know, it all kind of starts with what you're putting into your body. And there's the possibility for a change that most people maybe have never seen in their lives. Yeah, that's, you mentioned clarity. It's a, everyone I work with, I tell them in the beginning. So that the, it starts with a little education piece because there's a lot to this. But when I say to them, listen, as we go through this, you're going to tell me, and, and I tell them because it happens every time. I say, in two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, you're going to come back to me. And I'm, I'm telling you now, but you can't really understand it. But you please come back to me when you feel it. And there's going to be a, a state of clarity, of mental happiness or ease that you're going to feel in a few weeks. And please let me know when you do. And every single time they come back and they, they're like, I know what you're talking about. And it's when we avoid the immediate dopamine pleasure um, that is eroding serotonin in our gut, we're now preserving serotonin. So we're naturally happier and more at ease. And there's more mental clarity because there's less inflammation throughout our body and in our brain. So we're creating a symbiotic state throughout our whole system uh, that makes us happier and just clearer and just feel better. And it's, it's just an amazing feeling that's hard to explain. People have to go through it, but every time they do, they come back and say, I got it. And that helps people forego a lot of immediate pleasure for the rest of their life once they feel the real happiness. Absolutely. It's hard to, it's hard to go against these things once you've experienced it yourself and you've gotten to a point of understanding and not just words on a page, but you understand and you're convinced because you have experienced it. So Sean, thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about this and what, what it's been like for you. I think it's clear that your excitement and passion toward this space um, is not only helpful for, for yourself and has gotten you into shape, but it's helped a lot of people around you and a lot of the people um, in your life and hopefully those that are listening. So, yeah, thanks again. And if there's anything else, um, anything else to say, now would be a, time, a good time. Anything to tell the listener? No, that was great. I enjoyed our chat and uh, I look forward to staying in touch on this. And, and, you know, we can talk more about different we can get deeper into some of these silos if anyone's interested uh, going forward. It's really fascinating. Yeah, and as I said, Sean's information will be up on the website, podcast.coreygarvey.com. So I'll have notes from some of the things that were brought up throughout today and some information on contacting him on Twitter and uh, elsewhere on the internet. So, Sean, thanks a lot. Thanks, Corey. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Settle the Far. All those amazing tunes you're hearing come from Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. For this week's challenge of the week, try to go an entire day eating no processed food. It's much harder than it seems. Thanks for joining along. Thanks for being a part of this journey. And until next time, stay inspired, people. I'll never ride.